Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to another edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is John Porch and I'm the lead writer here at Leaders. For this edition of the podcast, we're talking about cognitive biases in sport, a subject that is underexplored but could prove a game changer if you know what to look for and how to combat it. To this end, I drafted in Dr. Benjamin Kelly, a behavioural economist who spent nine years at BlackRock before founding his own company, the London-based Castle Cliff. He works with a variety of hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds and asset managers to help remove common biases that hinder their investment decisions. Joining Ben and I was Dr. Clive Reeves. Clive is a strategic advisor who works with a number of sports organisations, including the NBA, MLB, Australian Rules Football and the English Premier League. Some of you may also know Clive from his sterling work with leaders and his perspective was invaluable in seeing how biases can emerge in sports. Over the course of our conversation, it emerged that sports executives and front office staff can be particularly prone to letting their emotions rule their heads, but it does not need to be that way. We went on to discuss possible solutions with particular regard to Premier League football and even, ever so briefly, Ben's reportedly diminishing golfing ability. There's barely more than an occasional nudge from me throughout, which will suit some tastes. So, what are some of the biases that can afflict the financial and sporting worlds? We'll be talking about five in particular today. First is outcome bias, when results can weigh heavily on a team's ongoing judgment. Second is anchoring, when we perhaps hold on too firmly to certain ideas or tie ourselves too closely to certain individuals. Third is sunk cost accounting, which has persisted in the face of logic because of previous or sunken costs. Next is regret, which should be self-explanatory, but it's incredible how often teams can be affected in this regard. And finally, there's overconfidence. Ben and Clive think we're all prone to this one. Which is the most prevalent bias in sport? What are some of the solutions that can be drawn from behavioural economics? Listen on to find out. And if you weren't aware that Leaders HQ was based next to one of London's busiest railway lines, then you'll be left in no doubt after the following chat. So enjoy, and we look forward to welcoming you on another Leaders Performance podcast in the near future. Okay, Ben, I wanted to start by asking you, what is behavioural finance and why is it important? Okay, so this subject's probably been around uh, since the mid to late 70s. And for anyone who's taken a class in economics, either at school or university, one of the first things they tell you is that individuals are very rational people. We always make perfect decisions. And I think where behavioural finance comes in it's essentially saying we don't, we don't make good decisions. Humans are very susceptible to our emotions, to our external environment. And actually, a lot of the things that economists would say in terms of models they produce regarding how individuals behave is, I wouldn't go as far as to say redundant, but I, I think there's very much kind of a psychological and emotional aspect. And this is where behavioral finance comes in. And this is um, what it says about people in respect that actually we, we behave normally so we, we use our emotions to make decisions more more than we should and I, I think certainly in in the domains I've encountered this uh, specifically investment management it's it, it, it's quite prevalent because individuals are making quite often um, complex decisions and in those arenas people tend to use heuristics or shortcuts to make the decision making simpler and quite often this is suboptimal so what, what I've been doing is looking at how people invest looking at their behaviors looking at their emotions and trying to understand well can I almost strip out some of these emotions 
make it more process orientated so that if, if you do suffer from a particular bias, then you will not necessarily have to use it because I, I will have integrated a step in your thought process that removes that instance. So it, it's very hard to rid yourself of these biases because we can listen to them, we can hear people talk uh, at conferences, but then a couple of weeks later it's, it's, it's gone and when we do the same things again. So you need to try and think of something permanent and that's what I try and associate myself with, trying to find a permanent solution to stop these biases occurring. So I think if I can say something here, I think sport's a really great example for this because this is probably an area I think this has been, it's been around for a while, if I'm right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But perhaps the conversation in sport hasn't been as developed as it could be. Um, if you think about sport as extreme pressure, high profile decision making, often due to media, fans, ownership, internal pressures to succeed today. Um, so I think if you look at the stuff that Ben's just mentioned there and its applicability to sport, you know, it's, just, it's a really you know, close-knit kind of uh, synergy there that we need to explore, which uh, we should do today. So what are some of the uh, biases that you observe in your day-to-day -day work, then, if you could just name a couple? Sure, I, you've got things like anchoring, overconfidence, regrets, sunk cost accounting, outcome bias. I, if, if, if you picked up uh, The Economist that was writing articles on behavioural finance or the FT or something like that, it would probably let, tell you that there's well over 120 behavioural biases out there. And I think that's absolute nonsense. I, the problem I have with this subject is that there's all these kind of funky labels assigned to describe how people behave, but they overlap so much. So to, if I went into a room, I've got a client and they say, right, what biases do I have? It, it, it could be a mixture of kind of overconfidence, anchoring, regrets. It, it's hard to isolate one particular bias. And the fact that all these biases tend to overlap anyway, I, I think you can condense it into a list of about seven or eight. Um, certainly, those are the kind of five that I see most prevalent in, in my industry um i look at sports you know, I've, you know when i'm not working you know, i'm not having to change nappies i try and follow sports quite a lot I follow football cricket uh, motor racing golf and you know i see a lot of these biases appear in those sports and i, I think to clive's point m maybe it is an underdeveloped conversation um in the sporting arena that hopefully we can kind of start to address today so you feel that some of those biases you mentioned there are actually evident in sport? Yes, yes, I, 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 absolutely. And I, I think, you know, if, if we start with something like um, outcome bias. Um, so uh, outcome bias is essentially the notion that good outcomes are a function of good decisions and bad outcomes are a function of bad decisions. And, you know, you, you can see this quite a lot. I, I think in football in particular, if you, if you look over the last five, ten years, and football clubs that have done particularly well, uh, people always try and assign a narrative as to why they've done particularly well. And quite often, if, if it's not a Manchester United or a Chelsea or an Arsenal or a Tottenham, um, these teams might have one good year, and then the next year, they're performing at, at a poorer level, shall we say. And I, I, I think in football, there is a reasonable degree of randomness in results. Obviously, player quality is a highly determining factor in how well you perform, but th th there is a degree of randomness. And 
I, I think people to struggle, in, not, just, not just in sport, but in all aspects, that randomness exists. But people, people are very averse to kind of attributing good performance to luck because it doesn't make them look particularly good, does it? And certainly you could look at Leicester City, for example, which I know, I know has been a well-cited case over, over the last couple of years, but you had in that bunch of players a team that had been performing you know, mid to lower half of the Premier League and then all of a sudden change the manager, not too much uh, change in player personnel, and they were in the Premier League by, what is it, it was about 10 points, I think they won in the end. And Claudio Ranieri is getting hailed as one of the greatest managers in Premier League history. I think he won World Manager of the Year. Push the clock forward three or four months and you know fans are calling phone-in shows all, all over the country saying they've got to get this guy out. He's an absolute clown. And you think, well, how, how can that shift in such a short space of time because essentially the player base with the exception of uh, Kante that went to Chelsea it was pretty much the same team that won the league but four or five months on you know they're in turmoil they're in the lower half of the league they're struggling to score goals and ultimately Ranieri loses his job and this is this is the world football manager of the year for 2016 it would be wouldn't it there obviously has to be some randomness in this as well. Like maybe Leicester just outperformed all expectations in that season. Everything clicked. And if you, if you kind of dig down and look at the, the data, then the number of 1-0 victories was, was quite significant. I, I think it was like 9 out of 18 games that they won. They won by just one goal. And in this, the following season, they were losing a lot of games by 1-0. And, you know, you, you can home in on the goal difference as well like the year they won the league it was only around plus 30 and if you do a regression on relating goal difference to position you finish in the league I think plus 30 would normally equate to around finishing fifth or sixth in the league so it's quite low by uh, Premier League champion standards and you feel as though may maybe when you, when you look at statistics like that you are perhaps thinking well okay could, could this potentially be like a one-season wonder? But the fact that they, they pulled off the unthinkable, a lot of people were thinking, well, this, this, this is like the blueprint now for how football teams should operate. And the secrets behind Ranieri's success, you know, it was all about team building. They could go and have pizzas on a Tuesday night if they wanted to. Simple things like this. And people built the story around the camaraderie Leicester had. And maybe they did have an exceptional camaraderie, but that's... If, if you believe the media, you know, soon broke down when things weren't going quite as well. And you, you just have to wonder that maybe Ranieri shouldn't have been heralded as strongly as he should in that given season. But we, we all try and build this narrative around success and, and failure as well. And the fail, failure was because the players had lost the confidence in Ranieri. But I don't think they were doing anything significantly different. It just feels that we latch onto these things incorrectly and we don't give randomness as much of a um, opportunity in thinking about how we analyse these things than we, than we do. How do you feel that teams could work to identify outcome bias within their organisation? Yeah, so I, I think it's thinking about things like understanding prior performance, looking at players, like the, the players you have on your books, and, and understanding that 
you know, you obviously want to optimize what you've got um, and, and maximize the abilities within your team. But, you know, surely, surely Leicester, when they won that league, thought this is going to be a difficult thing to attain. And, and to be fair to them, I, I think that there was a lot of stories around, well, it's unlikely they're going to be able to achieve uh, league champions the following season. But it, it, it is very much considering what have we actually got, mapping out what have we got, what, what, what is a suitable target for us the next season. And, and this perhaps brings us on to anchoring the fact that in football in particular, I, I think nowadays as well with the amount of money in the game, that whatever you achieved last season, you've got to go one better. And it doesn't matter whether the personnel is weaker or not, you've kind of got to go one better. And that's, again, in my view, slightly biased because not everyone can constantly keep improving at, at, at the same rate. And if you have had a season where perhaps there's been some fortune, you have got to kind of think about, well, okay, we have, we have a long-term average achievement of finishing, I don't know, let's say in the top eight for Leicester. And that, that should be the objective every season. Obviously, if you surpass that, great. And if there's reasons why you think you should do much better than that, such as the fact that you bring in more players, better quality players, um, Perfect, but I, I think there has to be this kind of level where, okay, we've won the league, if we finish top eight next season, that's a realistic achievement given the set of players we have, um, and also relative to other teams as well. Now you, you kind of have to rate yourselves relative to the opposition as well. So, Ben, the question there would be for me, when you've had success, what you often see, as you've mentioned, teams reward players with new contracts, mm. or they reward managers with new contracts. And that doesn't necessarily always factor into the randomness or luck or, yeah. or potentially the, the skill that it took to achieve the, the previous results. So how, how would you recommend clubs approach that? So you often hear at teams, you know, we played well but lost, we, we played badly but won. Show, and particularly in sports like football where it's low scoring and there's a lot of randomness. Yeah. How, how, do, how do clubs or executives approach those situations because clearly there's a lot of outcome bias there by saying, you did great last year, here's a five-year deal on X amount. But that might not be the right decision. But probably the expectation from the player is that I did well, therefore I need to be rewarded. So how, how does that yeah. play out? Um, like what, what we do in investment management quite often, so if you look at fund management, which you know there's, there's a lot of similarities here, you can have an amazing one-year track record where you beat a, a given benchmark, let's say by 10%. So the fund manager will be thinking, well, I'm going to be compensated based on the fact that I've just outperformed the benchmark by 10%. I'm the best performing, let's say, European large cap manager in uh, in the UK right now. Therefore, I deserve a big bonus at, at, at the end of the year. Um, what they do is essentially kind of stagger it, saying, well, you're going to get evaluated over three years. So... If you, do, if you have an amazing first year, obviously that's great, and that'll obviously factor into your three-year track record, but it's not going to be solely determined upon this amazing one year, because next year you could be down 10 12%. So they, they try and kind of roll it out over three years. Some events they do over five years, so that investment managers are not incentivized to take unnecessary risk just to try and have this one amazing year where, let's say, if you're very fortunate, you can end up with millions in terms of bonus, and then you decide, right, I'm going, I'm done. Um, so perhaps you could do it a similar way 
in football in terms of rewarding obviously players that have done very well and I, and I think perhaps the increasingly transitory nature of football in terms of duration of play staying at clubs that could be a problem but let's say okay you can you can have a bonus obviously because you perform very well but we want to see this over two years or how the duration of the contract so if you continue to to play at that level then your bonus will get higher and higher but you're not going to get one massive big payoff at the end of this one season to justify that and I suppose the counter argument could be well if players don't get a particularly good bonus then okay they could go and they've had a good season they could go to perhaps a bigger club and get that money elsewhere um, that, that that's hard to kind of guard against but I, I think if, if you're looking for kind of trying to build success in the long term not just short term as well then maybe rolling that out over a number of years might be a way to do it so the challenge I think sports executives have is that balancing the objectivity versus the emotional mm. bias, which I think is the point you're trying to make. So structuring contracts in a way that overcomes that over a longer period of time makes makes a lot of sense, I think. Um, but that, that key point around how do you take emotion out of this, particularly when you've got fans, media, players, it, 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 Yeah, absolutely. That, it's, that's, that's, it's the hard. realities of that, that kind of yeah. world is, is very difficult. So uh, I think the awareness of your biases and what you attribute to outcome is something that I think all sports executives probably need to, to try and improve. Okay, Ben, so a few minutes ago you mentioned anchoring. So could you explain a little bit about that and how that might appear in sport? Yep, so anchoring, I, so, so to kind of give you context around what anchoring is, whenever I go out and play golf, I still anchor. So I, at university I play four or five times a week, I got to a pretty good level. Now I'm not, I'm not that great, play once every two or three months. But whenever I go into a golf course, I expect to place the same level as I did when I was actually quite decent. And that's completely irrational, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm older, I'm, my technique's gone, but if I don't shoot two over par, I'm really fed up and thinking, well, it, 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 what, why am I playing this game? And I, I think I'm getting to the point now where I either just quit the game or just accept that I'm not as good as I used to be. And this is essentially a form of anchoring. So it's, it's clinging on to ir essentially irrational uh, figures to kind of generate decisions, if that makes sense. Uh, you see it a lot in financial markets and forecasting would be the obvious one. So if you want to think about GDP of a particular country, you can go and see the IMF, you can go and see a central bank website, you can go and see an investment bank and they'll tell you their forecast. And what you find is that generally they just cluster around the same points. So people anchor off other people's forecasts, which are, then, which are generally built upon other people's forecasts. So you get this huge cluster of forecasts because everyone's just anchoring off someone else. And there was this great quote from the Times a couple of years ago, just after the general election, and it was around why the polling companies not managed to figure out that the Conservatives were going to get a majority. And the chairman of this polling company said, well, actually, three days before the general election, our numbers were telling us that the Conservatives were going to get such a strong majority. But when we compared our results with everyone else's, we decided not to publish it. And if that's not a classic case of anchoring, because you're afraid to, to state kind of outliers, then I don't know what is. So that's, that's how you see it 
in a financial setting. Um, and I think going back to golf, the USPGA did a study on this about seven or eight years ago, and they assessed uh, tour players, including Tiger Woods. There was about 150, and they got them to put uh, 10 foot puts of identical length. So there were two puts. One was essentially described as you're making this for a birdie, and the other one was described as you're making this for a par put. And what you found is that people actually hold more of the par puts than the birdie puts, because from a golfer's point of view, if you're making over par, that's sort of, that's like a negative stroke gone, and a birdie is almost like a, a gift. So that if if you miss the birdie, that's not ideal, but you're still going to make par. But if you miss if you miss your par puts, that's bad. So people were focusing more of the attention on the par put than the birdie put because the birdie was almost like a freebie, and. Essentially, if they're the same level put, you should treat them in both the same way, but you anchor off these particular numbers, and that generates how you make decisions. So I suppose if we think about sport and how you see anchoring, I think quite often, whether it's coming from the media, fans, clubs run during a season, so uh, August to May, don't they, in football. And at the end of that season, it doesn't really matter what happens, but everyone's aspiration is, is that you go one better the next season. And sometimes that might be quite true. But in other cases, that could be absolute nonsense. Like you might in your heart feel, I'm, I'm a Blackburn fan, I, I feel as though they want to improve every season. But yet, if I think about this logically, I know there's a lot of headwinds as to why that's going to happen. But, you, but surely you have to think about the player personnel you have, the opposition personnel, and think about, well, it realistically... Are we going to be able to get into, say, a Champions League spot this year? But that, that, that's, that might be your ambition, but realistically, is it possible? And I suppose you could look maybe like an Everton at the moment who spends a lot of money that are trying to break into that. And you think, well, let's just have a look at the players versus everyone else's. And is, and is that a realistic option? But I, I think if Koeman doesn't even like start knocking on the door of Champions League this year, his, his job might be an, an, under threat. And I suppose the point is, we, we're using this data as kind of anchor points, and we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be at all, I don't think. I, I think you have to evaluate from scratch, thinking, well, this is what we've got, this is what we want to achieve, but we shouldn't be looking back thinking, well, okay, this is what we did last season, so therefore this season we've, we've got to go that one better. Like I said, you see it a lot in financial markets. I, I see it in football in particular, and I suppose you could think about it in, in any kind of sporting domain, this, this uh, desire to do better, which, which is great. But at the same time, you've, you've got to think logically about this. And I think underlying all these biases is having a strong process. Because I think if you've got a strong process, then you have the capacity under high degrees of uncertainty and pressure, you can rely on your process to give you the right decisions. So I think a good example of that in sport would be when clubs sign players based on past experience. Mm. So an example would be if you had a striker who scored 20 goals a season five years ago for two or three years but maybe relied on his pace to, to yeah. achieve that now he's late 20s early 30s and his pace has dropped off a bit people would still buy him because he's a 20 goal a season man where in the reality he was a few years ago but maybe not now. so now yeah. but more importantly for the duration of the contract you're offering him will he be a 20 goal a season man and I think people's biases often get sort of anchored to past performance and Absolutely, don't yeah. necessarily factor in for us, for our team, what 
will he achieve and try and be a bit more predictive in, in that outcome? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's probably why some players will go, after having a great spell at one particular club, might kind of do a run of five or six different clubs because they've obviously lost that skill uh, or part of their skill. And clubs are kind of latching on, hoping that this particular player might be able to rekindle what they had 10 years ago. But realistically, if the pace is gone, then either they need to kind of redefine themselves as a different style of footballer or they have to appreciate that this is not the same person you, you would have got 10 years ago. Ben, what is sunk cost accounting? So, yeah. Well, this, this, this one is uh, what I spent four years of my life on. It's a very catchy uh, title, isn't it? So essentially, this is when you make a decision based on a historical cost. So it doesn't necessarily have to be monetary. It could be time. It could be effort. And to give you an example, so I would go and see Blackburn two or three times a year. I've made the journey up to Lancashire. And given their recent troubles, I'd be sitting there at half time and it'd be nil nil or they'd be losing. And I'm thinking, goodness, this is absolutely awful. Like I've spent 100, 150 pounds to come up here and it's just a dire game. Why don't I just get back on the train down to London and, and forget, forget that I've been here? And then I think, no, no, don't be stupid, Ben. You know, you've spent 150 pounds to be miserable, so you may as well sit it out. And this is the kind of like the classic sunk cost phenomenon. I'm being influenced because I've spent all this money to get there. I feel as though I've got to sit it out, even though I might think, well, actually, I could get much more satisfaction just popping on a train back to London. But we, it, people find it hard to think in these kind of constructs. So, uh, you know, if we think outside of sports just for a moment, infrastructure projects, you, you see a lot of this in, in action. So I used to live in Edinburgh. I spent four or five years there. And when I first started work, the city was about to commence construction on a tram system that would revolutionise the city at a cost of about half a billion. It's going to take four years. By the time I moved to London, it should have been complete, but... They, the, the city was a mess. Like, there was construction work going on all over the city with no visible signs that actually anything was really happening other than just a lot of mess. And at that juncture, they'd already consumed the 400, 500 million that they thought it would take. It was going to take another four or five years and at, at, at pretty much a, a similar cost, another four or 500 million. So what you could do at that point is say, well, actually, this has lasted four or five years. We've, we've blown our budget. It's going to take twice as long as we thought, twice as much. Perhaps this next chunk of, uh, of, of capital, the next 400 million, perhaps we can move that to a different project that would actually reap greater benefits than this. Perhaps we just put this down to a bad project. It's not worked. And we wipe the slate clean and we move on to something else. But I, I think it's quite hard for people to think in that kind of mindset and they think more along the lines of, well, we've spent so much money, so much time, we've just got to get this thing finished. And it doesn't matter how much time, how much money, how much effort it takes to get this thing completed, that's what you do. So in the end, you, you, you end up with something that really no one wanted, but to kind of try and save face and to show commitment in something that you started many years ago, you just keep going with it. And I, I, I think in football... Um, like, again, if, if I'm all right to use a, a Blackburn example because it's a clue I've followed for a number of years when they signed Kevin Davis in the late 1990s I think it was a British transfer record of about seven million 
and he, he, he was dreadful. Like, I know he went on to have great success elsewhere, but he, he couldn't translate his form that he'd had at uh, Chesterfield at Blackburn. And I think, you know, 10 games in, they had the likes of uh, Chris Sutton, Matt Janssen on the, on the bench. And, and you're thinking, well, surely these guys need to be getting back into the first team again. But I, I, I believe because so much money had been spent on Kevin Davis, there was commitment that actually they need to keep playing him. And if, if the performances don't live up to the money, then he, he should be out of the team. And I, and I think an equivalent player, so at, at that time, sorry, I, th- I think they bought uh, Kevin Davis from Southampton, didn't they? And James Beattie went the other way. I think if James Beattie, for example, had still been a Blackburn because he'd been brought up through the youth system, he wouldn't have had 10 games on those performances. He would have been back into the reserves pretty quickly. But because you spend a significant amount of money on this person, you feel as though you've got to justify that expense. And, it, and it's not thinking about, we want to finish in the top half, or in Blackburn's case that season, we, we, we've got to stay in the Premier League. It's more, it's more short-term thinking, well, I've, I've spent all this money on him, he, he's got to play rather than what players are going to deliver the best outcome for this team this season. And I think the kind of players they had in the background in that season deserved opportunities in the first team, but because they spent so much money, they found that very difficult to do. And I'm sure you could look at nearly every football club under the sun and look at examples of where this has happened over the years. Yeah, I I think this is most prevalent when you think about a young player through an academy system versus Mm. a a star player that you've purchased. I think when you look at where the challenge is in youth development with young players making that final step into the team, I, I would assume there's a significant bias around this in terms of they're not ready versus buying a proven product. Yeah. Well, actually, if you strip it back to the two players and how they compare, I would imagine there's probably not a huge amount of difference. But the bias would be if we paid £20 million now for player X, that player is going to get preferential treatment. It's going to get more opportunities, more care and attention than the you know, player that's been in your academy system for ten yeah. years. And actually, when you break it down, that doesn't necessarily make sense because you've got more sunk costs in terms of the overall absolutely yeah. investment. You know, emotional, practical, as well as financial on the young talent. But that never seems to outweigh the no go and buy ready-made products. So a classic example this year would probably be Chelsea when they bought. Um, the centre midfielder from Monaco for 20, oh, back here, okay. yeah, yeah. 25 million, but then sent two of their best young English centre midfielders out on loan yeah. for a year. But actually, age profile-wise, position-wise, they're quite similar. Now, there may be he's significantly better than those two, and that's, that's their decision. But I'm sure there's some bias at play there in terms of how they've evaluated that situation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, maybe as we move to a more kind of data-driven culture in football and you could assess if, if you could assess players just based on data so you wouldn't even need to know the name so to speak you, you, you could track them over a couple of weeks playing in closed door games for example and you can assess which one's better so maybe if it is a case of looking at someone from Monaco stats and then someone from your own team stats but you don't know who the stats belong to so to speak if this is possible like I'm, I'm I'm not intimately involved in how data, the data works in, in football, but pr- presumably, you know, everything's kind of measured now. You, you have all this data at your fingertips that you don't need to necessarily know 
the names of the players because obviously that that is an emotional bias. You know, if, if someone said to me, "Blackburn want to sign Lionel Messi or this guy in the youth team," obviously I'm going to say Lionel Messi. But actually, maybe just by some kind of freak chance, this person in the youth team is actually going to surpass Messi's records. Very, very unlikely, I know, but just by looking at the data, it might give you a different impression, and maybe that kind of can help to remove some of that bias out of it. Okay, Ben, regrets. We've all had a few, but what, <laughs> does, it, what does it mean in behavioural finance terms? This, this one I particularly like because the emotion of regret targets the same part of your brain as being punched in the face, so you don't get the same physical scars, obviously, as being punched in the face, but emotionally you feel beat, pretty beaten up. And this, this relates to when we're given a set of choices, quite frequently we will make the decision that provides the least amount of emotional discomfort. So it might not necessarily be the best decision, but it'll provide the least amount of discomfort. And I, I suppose in my role as a strategist at BlackRock, I would see clients from various parts of the world and we would get into conversations and a lot of them would say, well, do you know what, over the last four or five years I've made lots of money out of my equity investments, but I feel there's this big kind of global shock around the corner, similar to 2008, 2009. I don't really know how it's going to manifest itself, but I just see something out there. My response would be, okay, if that's, if that's your kind of hypothesis, how do, you, how do you think about your asset allocation? Are you going to de-risk your investments to protect you from this potential shock and a lot of them would say no I don't think I'm going to do anything actually and the behavioral angle from that is that actually people do not want to make this decision to kind of de-risk your investment strategy if, if no one else is doing it because if you make that decision and it goes against you then you're in this dark room that you don't really want to go anywhere near so the easy the easy thing to do is actually take the option that provides the least amount of emotional discomfort and that is just carry on doing what everyone else is doing really because if markets do reverse then that's not ideal but if everyone's suffering a similar kind of fate to you emotionally you can kind of handle that but if, if you go alone and it works against you like I said that is a place you really don't want to be so you take this what I would term like this kind of lazy option which is just doing what everyone else is doing even though in your head you're thinking well if I think this is going to happen then I should probably address my risk allocation, but you, you don't do it because you just don't want to be in this dark place. I, I think when it comes to sports arenas, uh, you know, I, I think this is one bias where process is the only way of kind of tr tr trumping a anything else because it's the hardest bias to rid yourself of and there's no natural way to beat it, but it's just having... A solid process to kind of get you through these difficult decisions and it's all about at the point I made the decision was that the best thing available to me not thinking about so again this kind of leads to outcomes a little bit when I was out in Asia a few months ago I was talking with hedge fund managers and you know I got them to list their good trades and bad trades of 2016 and as I described earlier the good ones were the, were the ones that performed the best the worst ones were the ones that performed uh, the worst and ultimately there, 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 are, there is a degree of randomness so, so you need to think about at the time I make a particular decision did all that information lead me into making that decision and if the answer is yes then you shouldn't beat yourself up about it 
later on at the outcome because you can control the process but you can't control outcomes and it's the same in sport you know you can only do what you can do under a certain set of, of parameters and there was a there was a video I saw that the McLaren Formula One team was, was showing of Lewis Hamilton driving around Monaco in 2008 and he crashes the car uh, he limps back to the pits. The commentators were going crazy, and uh, new front nose, new tires, and away he goes. And they then show the same footage, but the um, produce the commentary between Lewis Hamilton and his pit crew. And you know he hits the tire wall. He reports back to the pits that he's, he's hit the tire wall, and he'll need a new nose cone. Drives into the pits, there's complete silence, new nose, new tyres, and then the next thing you hear is, right, Lewis, you're in third place, you're 25 seconds behind this individual, go and, go, that, that, that's your target now. So it, it's kind of gone from winning to th getting seconds the next target. And, you know, there's no hysterics, it's all, this is the process, this is what you do under these conditions. And that's what you do. And... The fact that they have such a strong process and the fact that this has probably been simulated a number of times helps to overcome this kind of regret bias. And this is, like I said, I think the only way you overcome regret is by having a strong process. Yeah, I think for me this is one that sports teams suffer from the most. Um, I think the paranoia of missing out on something mm. to the other team makes this quite a prevalent bias. If you think about the transfer window in, in football in England, Fans and the media, if you don't sign a player, there's a big, it's a negative and there's an anxiety around why haven't you improved your team. So therefore, I think executives and clubs feel pressure to go and buy players yeah. just because they have to spend 50 million because everyone else has spent 50 million. Or they have to go and buy this player or that player because so you see that quite often. Also, if a player's been linked with Man United, Chelsea, Man City, then by nature, Arsenal, Liverpool and Spurs should also be thinking about that player even though it might not fit what they necessarily yeah. need or want. So I think you see that a lot. And also with kind of emerging technologies and performance areas, if if a team hears about another team that have got an analytics guru in their, their their staff, they'll all go out and hire one, even though they might not actually want one or use one or need one. Yeah. Um, so I think you see that kind of that paranoia of missing out of, on something that comes across quite strongly, which I think is... Um, yeah, what, what you're talking about. Yeah, and I think it is just having a process, and, and maybe if clubs could be a bit more transparent in terms of this is where we want to get to, and at the time, the transfer deadline, there was no player there in our analysis that could improve the quality of the team. We took the option that there's no point allocating capital to players that weren't going to enhance the team. That's that's the kind of long-term thinking you need, but you, you know, I'm, I'm sure, not having done any analysis, but the kind of players that do get signed for crazy values right at the end on transfer deadline day, you know, probably out, outweighs their, their actual quality in, in, in some regards. So I think that there's a lot of panic. Yeah. But to your point, earlier point, the expectation, the media, of course, the fans, yeah. because, and the, the, the need to look like you're trying to improve yeah. year in, year out means that you end up making a decision that perhaps you don't necessarily think Absolutely. When there's no emotion, there's pure logic, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I think a really good example of this was last season in, in the Premier League with the playing a, a back three versus a back four formation. Mm. I, I don't know the stats on this specifically, but I would make the assumption that nobody played with a back three until Chelsea started it. Chelsea, yeah. Chelsea then went on an unbelievable 
run and won the league, and then look how many people are now playing with the back three. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that is that based on the fact that they're they've seen something and they tactically think that's actually makes a lot of sense. And my whole twenty year coaching career so far was wrong, or are they doing it just because Chelsea did it and they got got success? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So there was some stuff in the uh, media today about Arsenal's defensive capabilities with a back four and a back three. And the stats show that they're actually worse with a back three than a back four. Yet, is Wenger under pressure to change his formation oh, yeah. for, for different reasons? So I think the kind of, that's just a really interesting kind of dynamic, I think, for coaches and their tactical formations based on what other people are doing and the hype around certain styles of play. I think it's just, yeah, just a fascinating area. Yeah, it is, it is. Very complex for coaches to really kind of you know, understand, and that regret of we're not doing it, and someone else is, and they're doing better than us must be a huge challenge for, for all, all Absolutely. coaches. Absolutely, Ben. Right at the top, you mentioned overconfidence. Mm. Why is that so important then? So, o- overconfidence is a sense. I, I think to a one degree or another, everyone has a little bit of overconfidence in them. So. A typical question I might ask at a conference is, put your hands up if you think you're an above average driver. And nearly everyone will put their hands up because everyone thinks they're above average. I think it's to do with thinking about how able we are doing things, what, what is the likelihood we can achieve things. So when we say we're 90% confident of something happening, actually, it's probably going to happen only 60-70% of the time. And I, I, I think this is a big issue in investment management because it kind of leads into something called confirmatory bias. So that is essentially when you get to the stage of, I like Tesco, I'm just going to go and buy it. And I don't really care what people around me are saying around Tesco. I've, got, I've been in the industry 30 years. I'm a very successful fund manager. More often than not, I get these calls right. I like Tesco, I'm going to buy it, and that's it. And you, you forget thinking about information that can kind of um, contradict your initial hypothesis. And, may, and maybe you're absolutely right, maybe Tesco is a great investment, but when you get down to that kind of thinking, you're not really filtering in other people's opinions. And I think long term, that, that, that is quite disruptive. So certainly in investments it's a big one for me in terms of okay well if you see these individuals how on earth do you get them to change the mindset and there's a number of solutions that you can do to try and counteract that i think in sports and again i think this focuses a little bit on on the kind of external pressures you get in professional sport these days but it is thinking about the bigger picture and not getting sucked into perhaps some of the some of the real kind of micro areas associated with your particular sport and, and again, I suppose this harks back to process a little bit. And if, if you look at perhaps what, what we've seen recently in kind of some of the football um, hirings and firings, I, I, I perhaps see a little bit of um, this, this bias in there in, in terms of like, if, if, if you look at Crystal Palace, for example, they were, uh, after five games, Mr. Ball, four games, sorry, Mr. Ball lost his job. And you have to think, well, surely that he, he was implemented on, on a long-term strategy, but ultimately, you know, he, he's lasted four games. Obviously, they've had very limited success. Haven't scored a goal. Performances, by all accounts, haven't been great. Um, so you could, you could perhaps, in one instance, praise them for saying, okay, they've realised quickly that something isn't working and then decided to kind of pull the cord and not get sucked down the sunk cost line. But equally, was it, was it a little bit too soon? And was there something? Was there not a plan in place to think? Well, this certain, this this guy has to be given 
at least 10 games, you know, you can, you can look at any team, I suspect, teams with a higher stature than Crystal Palace, where they give their managers four or five games without winning. And I think it's just because it's come right at the start of the season, you're viewing it in a kind of very discreet period. Whether it remains the right decision or not, we'll certainly find out in time. But people get sucked in by media, by fans, and quite often you just need to take a step back and analyse actually what, what on earth have you got on paper here. And again, it's all around process, all around thinking about your objectives, but you, you get sucked in. And I suspect it, in, in sports it's much more than investment management or, or financial markets in general because of the kind of the media that's, that's essentially telling you, you know, you've, you've, you've got to get De Boer out. And if it had been, let's say, Pochettino, for example, if, if Tottenham had gone four games, I, I think he'd probably still be in a job now. They're a better team than Palace. Um, so you, you, you do have to kind of take the step back. And that, that's the kind of way you beat it. Like, like in financial markets, 18 months ago, the whole world was going to blow up pretty much. There was going to be a global recession. But the data was giving you nothing. Like the data looks actually pretty good. But you had dropping oil prices, you had a lot of kind of geopolitical risk going on around the world, and people were starting to panic about this. But you look at the data, and there's nothing there to suggest you're going to get a global recession. And some fund managers got sucked in to the kind of media, the Bloombergs of this world, you know, the constant TV coverage of financial markets. And they kind of changed their strategy preparing for this, and nothing happened. And they kind of blew up within the first two or three months um, of 2016. So it, it, it's important to always kind of question yourself, well, where could I be wrong on a particular strategy, taking a step back and, and not having this kind of myopic field of vision, which is very easy to do. But the, the most successful fund managers are certainly the ones that have this great ability of taking a step back, like Warren Buffett, um, who I suppose is held as the greatest investor on the planet, during the financial crisis um, of 08 and 09, he, he, went, you know, he went into the Midwest and went for walks in the country and turned his phone off. He, he wasn't interested in the kind of hysteria that was going on in the financial community because he thought he would make poor decisions in that setting, so he, he took himself away. And I think having that ability to move away at times uh, can be quite helpful. So Clive, have you uh, ever encountered any examples of overconfidence in your time working in pro sport? Yeah, I think, I think you see it when team. I think, uh, as Ben alluded to earlier, when teams go on runs of, of wins or losses, I think you can certainly see where um, I've been part of a team where we went on a, a seven, eight game spell where we probably overachieved and everybody thinks they're then great and then through that process of believing in their own sort of hysteria and hype of how good everyone is, then starts to detract away from their processes, and then what comes after that is a pretty, pretty tough bump. Mm. Uh, when you realise actually you weren't quite as good as you thought you were, and actually you've moved away from your processes that got you the success, therefore a string of negative results come. And when that negative results does start to happen, you then start to think about you know, it becomes a crisis, and then it's crisis management as opposed to being non-emotional about what's happening and going, okay, well, how do we get back onto our, you know what works for us sort of process mm. it gets back on even kill then it becomes around do we change the manager do we drop start chopping changing players and I think teams naturally go through cycles and the example given about uh, the Crystal Palace changing manager so early in the season is interesting because 
in the previous year, Sam Allardyce went through a run of six games, seven games without a win. But it wasn't at the start of the season. It was the start of his tenure and was probably attributed to the previous regime. Yeah. So it's just, again, that perception and... Uh, Overconference or underconference in in a certain situation makes it you know, very difficult. So I think yeah. the principle of trying to be non-emotional on paper makes a lot of sense, but in the reality of the you know, the whirlwind of say Premier League football or or, or Major League sport, that's a you know, almost impossible challenge because yeah. every every man and lady has an opinion on what should or shouldn't happen. The media are twenty four seven in every format, social media in particular. That's getting harder and harder for executives to go, okay, how do I take that step back? How do I be non-emotional and, and make a, 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 the right decision? Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly think you can see when the media pick a manager that's next for the, the chopping block, should we say, that's normally pretty hard for that individual to, to turn it around because yeah. it becomes this, this hype around what is or isn't happening and, and why is it happening. And I think that's, that's a huge challenge, both for the coaches that are under that pressure uh, but also for the board level and executives that are having to think about those sorts of decisions. So, um, yeah, it's, you see it every day, I think. And I suppose it is this kind of, I completely understand why it's like this, but there's almost a misalignment in terms of this is what we want to achieve. Bournemouth five years ago, if someone had said, well, you know, you're going you're gonna to be in your in the third year of playing Premier League football now, I, I think every fan would have taken that. But yeah, they've obviously had two reasonable years in the Premier League not started that well and and the manager now even, even someone like Eddie Howe's under a little bit of pressure and you think goodness you know if you, if you gave a fan a five-year vision absolutely that's that's where they'd want to be but in reality it's, it's different and, and Leicester the same you know if you said to a Leicester fan you can win the league this year and get relegated the following season I'm sure quite a lot would probably have, have accepted that but when you when you go through that it turns out to be something very different and, and you, you know whether it's anchoring whether it's overconfidence your, your perceptions change and all of a sudden You've got to get rid of the manager because you're facing relegation, even though it's the same guy that's won World Manager of the Year the following year. And I suppose he's ended up at Nantes now, isn't it? I think that's where he's ended up. Um, In France, yeah. Yeah, yeah Ranieri at Nantes, like, if, yeah. If, if, if he'd left the year they won the league, I'm sure he could have found a higher reputation club than Nantes. Um, yeah, I, I think you see this most prevalently in the acquisition of players. I think you see a lot of these biases come out in that process around who they should or shouldn't buy and how much people pay and, and, and the salaries that come with that. And I think you see it in the managerial change that seems to happen every, what, 13 months on average mm-hmm. now, is it? Um, and it's one thing where clubs need to think about what are we trying to achieve, what's our processes, how we're making decisions, um, and, and build that process using you know, experts yeah. like yourself to really understand what biases could be at play. I just think it's probably an under underdeveloped conversation for the most sports and most clubs right now because I don't, I don't see a huge amount of people working in that space um, and perhaps there should be something there. Plenty of food for thought there. Dr Benjamin Kelly, Dr Clive Reeves, thank you both very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you.